Thank you, Carol. Morning, everyone. I'd say please keep your Bibles open there, but I don't know where there should be because this is a doctrine sermon this morning. We're going to be jumping everywhere. Uh, let me lead us briefly in prayer and we'll get stuck into it. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you're the God who speaks and that you speak in your word for our good and that you teach us uh, all that we need to know, especially concerning the last days in which we find ourselves and will find ourselves. Uh, please help us to understand your will for our lives in these last days as we consider what your word teaches about them this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, a big problem that often plagues Christians, especially in the first world like ours, is a problem that I'm going to call the fluffy future fail, partly because it's just a nice alliteration. What is the fluffy future fail? I'll tell you. We know that in the future Jesus is going to return to judge the living and the dead. We said it in our creed this morning. Then we'll all go to heaven, everything will be absolutely perfect. But the details, the finer points of that great future can often be kind of scatty and so it stays in what I call the fluffy category, the pie in the sky when you die kind of vibe. And because the, that great future gets relegated to the fluffy, not too well-defined box, it doesn't affect our day-to-day -day thinking and decisions very much, uh, if at all. For many Christians, life has a predictable shape. Of course, there's church, there's growth group, there's always the ongoing struggle with prayer and Bible reading and the guilt we feel for never doing those things enough. And apart from that, it's work. Try to own a house, put the kids through school, make sure I have a decent retirement. Oh, and because you're a Christian, when you die, you get to go to heaven. Your ultimate destination is indeed a happy ending, but one that remains largely undefined. And because it's largely undefined, it has very little actual bearing on your life in the here and now, other than it operates like a really, really, really good insurance policy. To fix the fluffy future fail, I'll put a fourth F in there, is to consider what the Bible teaches us about eschatology. Eschatology is the study of what the Bible calls the last days or the last things. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if you, uh, some of you are familiar with uh, the way the writer to the Hebrews opens his letter. Hebrews 1.1 says, in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. The adjective there, last, comes from the Greek word eschatos. So what do you know? It's from where we get the, uh, the term eschatology. And we can see here in these words, actually, that uh, the last days are already a reality. They are already present. It's in these last days that we've lived ever since the ascension of Jesus. The return of Jesus and his final judgment, that obviously hasn't happened yet, and yet the goal to which God is moving history, the end point has already begun. God's future, if you like, has broken into our present. Eschatology is not only concerned with what will happen on the last day, but what is in fact happening in these last days. And it's this overlap of the ages or as I've called it on your outline, the beginning of the end, uh, in which we're going to start to see how the Bible defluffies the future and enables us to live in these last days in light of the last day. So I hope you're ready to uh, get stuck into it with me. It's a wonderful topic, uh, one that I find uh, intriguing and delighting. Point one in your outline, the beginning of the end.
The Old Testament prophets set up an expectation that God would one day have his people in a perfect kingdom. A kingdom ruled over by the son of David and a kingdom that would last into eternity. When Jesus preached the gospel, the first thing he said was, the time has come and the kingdom of God has come near, so repent and believe the good news. Then later on, as he was being crucified, the criminal on the cross said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And yet... After his resurrection from the dead, his disciples gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Israel's as big as they thought at the time, right? Are you going to restore the kingdom? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Now, the only way you can hold all these three things together is to assume, rightly, that God's eschatological kingdom has begun but has not yet been consummated. It's possible to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven now. It's possible to be a citizen of God's kingdom today, and yet also to long for the day when God's will shall be done on earth as it currently is in heaven. The age Christians live in is the beginning of the end, or as the Bible puts it, The last days, plural. Now, for a part of today's sermon, I've played to my weakness instead of my strength and decided to give what, for me at least, is uh, extraordinarily fancy, uh, a visual representation of the time in which the Bible places us. So here we go. You can admire the pretty pictures and say, wow, if you enjoy. From Genesis... Through to the four Gospels, we see the creation, the fall, that is rebellion of all humanity against God, the history of Israel, and of course, the birth, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, who is the full and final revelation of God. The resurrection and ascension of Jesus inaugurated the eschaton, the resurrection age, which actually continues into eternity. But, as we heard in that first Bible reading from Carol, 2 Peter chapter 3, things also continue as they are prior to the second coming of Jesus. As Christians, therefore, we are both raised with Christ already, Ephesians chapter 2, and yet remain in the world as his witnesses. See, we rightly look forward to the time that our earthly and heavenly existence are no longer separate, but together. We're not told when that will happen, but that it certainly will happen. It will happen, of course, when Jesus Christ returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. When he returns, and in my opinion, immediately carries out the final judgment, then the heavenly reality, the domain in which God's perfect will is always done, will figuratively speaking come down. In the immortal words of the 80s singer-songwriter Belinda Carlisle, it will one day be true that heaven is a place on earth. And the scriptures do use the imagery 
of the heavenly city coming down and becoming an earthly paradise. But in similar fashion, the Bible also suggests that the created order, along with the saved people of God, will figuratively go up. Uh, To use the language of Revelation 21, God's dwelling place will now be among the people, coming down. To use the language of, for example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the Lord himself will descend and yet those who are alive and left will be caught up with him uh, to meet Jesus and his people in the air. What this means is that heaven is not so much a fluffy place of rainbows and unicorns and playing harps on clouds, but it's actually a shorthand for what the Bible calls the new heavens and the new earth. That's what heaven is meant eschatologically, the new heavens and the new earth. It is a physical reality where we'll have real flesh and bones and bodies and stuff and real minds and do real activity. I look forward to the eating part. Apparently there'll be a feast at the table with Abraham. Now, of course, the saddest thing about knowing the truth that is in Christ is knowing that those who have not taken part in that first resurrection, those who have not repented and put their their trust in Christ, will, sadly, receive the justice they absolutely deserve at the end. On account of their own sinful will and volition... And along with Satan and his angels, they will suffer the eternal torment of hell. That's what hell is. We're going to look more at heaven and hell a little bit later on. But for now, hopefully we can start to appreciate how the fact that we've already entered into God's future impacts in so many ways how we live in the here and now. Christians awkwardly have what you might call a foot in two worlds. We are raised and seated with Christ, Ephesians 2, and yet here we remain in the continual world, 2 Peter 3. For starters, this reality gives us one of the big motivations to therefore pursue holiness in our day-to-day lives. Paul writes in Colossians 3, and I quote, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And if you happen to know the rest of Colossians chapter 3, you know that what follows is a big, long list of all the stuff where to kill or put off the greed, sexual immorality, idolatry, anger, rage, malice, slander. And then, of course, all the godly things where to on gentleness kindness love for one another living in both the last days and the resurrection age also provides the basis actually for having inner joy and inner peace and inner contentment despite the very real and very painful trials and sufferings of a perished world that we all experience at various times and ways For example, and I'm guessing this could be a favourite passage for some of you, what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, rejoice in the Lord always, he can say, even as he's in jail. I'll say it again, rejoice, let your gentleness be evident to all, the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Let the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, I think that's a bit of the heaven breaking in kind of vibe, Uh, will guard your hearts and minds 
in Christ Jesus as you continue in the here and now. And finally, on this point, living in both the last days and the resurrection age is actually a great motivation for evangelism. We must tell of his salvation while we wait for the day when Jesus comes will be too late. A great quote about this from uh, uh, the late systematic theologian named uh, Anthony Hakima puts it like this, and I'll put the words on the screen. Jesus had said, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So this preaching of the gospel, therefore, is both a distinctive mark of the age in which we now live and a sign pointing forward to Christ's second coming. The missionary preaching of the gospel is a sign which reminds us of Christ's victory in the past and which anticipates his glorious return. Brothers and sisters, it's my delight to encourage you by saying that every single effort you ever make toward holiness, every prayer, every time you do something to nourish your spiritual life, every act of repentance... Every effort you put into killing your sinful thoughts, words and deeds. Every effort at telling others the good news about Jesus. It is all you becoming more of the real you. The you that you'll be on the final day when there's no longer any conflict between the spirit and the flesh. And speaking of that day, point two on your outline, we're now going to look briefly at the final judgment itself. Or as I've called it, the end of the beginning. On the last day, could be tomorrow, could be in a thousand years, but on the last day, Jesus will return in glory to judge the living and the dead. He will separate all people into two categories, just like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, sheep on the right, goats on the left kind of thing. Those who have lived with Jesus as Lord and Saviour, he'll give us entry into the glorious kingdom that has been prepared for us since the beginning of the world. Those who have continued to live in smug, defiant rebellion against him, he will send to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You can read that in Matthew 25. The Bible has a lot to say about that final judgment, but two things in particular get more airtime in the word of God than most. They are firstly the rightness of that final judgment, the goodness of that last day and secondly the unexpectedness of that final judgment so two big ticket items when it comes to the return of Jesus the rightness of God's judgment and the unexpectedness of it we'll start by looking first at the rightness of the judgment the word hallelujah we heard it this morning during a wonderful kid spot someone yell out what does hallelujah mean anyone know Praise God, yeah. It occurs four times only in the New Testament. Only four times. And of all those four times, it's in Revelation chapter 19. And on all four occasions, there are people praising God because of his decisive, final and eternal judgment on all worldly power and all worldly people that lived in deliberate rebellion against Jesus and his church. To get a bit of a feel for it, we'll just look at the part that has the first two hallelujahs. So from Revelation 19, verse 1, after this I heard what sounded like the roar of great multitude in heaven shouting, and by the way, there's more shouting than there is singing in Revelation, fun fact. 
shouting hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries, which is a metaphor for all political power and that rivals itself against God. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Now notice that our Christian singer-songwriters these days seldom want to put songs that have hallelujah for the fact that God is condemning the prostitute and the smoke goes up for her forever and ever. But that's all right. I'll write one one day. Friends, one of the many, and there are many, but one of the many immoral things about atheism is that it excludes the possibility of a final divine judgment for all people who ever live. That is profoundly immoral atheism for this reason alone you see it means that for adolf hitler there is no ultimate reckoning do he kill six million jews commit all these human atrocities do unspeakable evil like all the other atheist dictators of the 20th century and then apparently all that happens is he commits suicide and ceases to exist that's it what a horrendously dreadful universe we live in if that really is the case. Now, the atheist might well justify his or her position by saying that they just can't accept the possibility of a God where the world is capable of things like, for example, the Holocaust. But that is such a cowardly cop-out. Because by the same logic, and frankly better logic, one could just as easily respond, I can't believe there is not a God, lest there is no ultimate justice for an unspeakably horrible evil like the Holocaust. That the true and living God will ultimately deliver justice on the last day is one of the biggest reasons to exclaim with joy, hallelujah. But that doesn't mean that we won't also, at least in the present, have tremendous sadness on account of the reality that there will be many who enter that eternal fire. One of our former archbishops, Peter Jensen, puts it really well when he writes, and I quote, for those who are perishing, responsible for their own condemnation through their unresolved rebellion against God's rule, there is the pain of exclusion from the presence of God in hell forever. Of the inconsolable loss of that love that should be at the centre of human life and the sharpness of unrelieved conscience. There need be no doubt that this has been their own choice, in not wanting to be ruled by God. But we can hardly think of it without pain and horror, of course, to which I say amen. The other thing the Bible keeps telling us about the final judgment is the unexpectedness of which, uh, which will characterise its coming. Uh, one of the most common illustrations that Jesus himself uses of the final judgment is it will come like a thief in the night. The moment someone comes along and tells you they've calculated the day of Jesus' return, or even the period of time, other than these last days, that Jesus will return, is the moment you know that someone has not believed the clear teaching of Jesus. Funnily enough, the world is full of such people. No one knows the day or the hour. And our job is not to calculate the secret things of God. Our job is to remain vigilant and ready. We're to stay sober and alert and to not get too comfortable 
with the ways of our perishing world. Even though, as we saw in that uh, first reading from 2 Peter, we could get the impression that things go on and on as they always have. Where to remember that that's exactly what people thought in the days of Noah until it was too late and the flood came. Now, I have this tremendous memory of one preacher once upon a time impressing upon me very effectively the idea of the, the suddenness of the last day uh, when, when Jesus will return. Uh, and so he did it for me, so I'm going to give it to you. It's going to be, the coming of Jesus is going to be a bit like, bang! That. And I never forgot it. And my hope is that now you don't either. Brothers and sisters, every time you gather with other believers under the word of God, you're doing what our loving Heavenly Father is, says is a great way to remain ready for that last day. That bang might make you a bit startled, but it won't make you surprised or shocked because you'll have kept yourself ready. The person who sees no such need of any serious church commitment is the person for whom that last day could well come as a dreadful shock. Good on you for all being here this morning, by the way. And that brings us to our third and final point. What happens beyond that last day? What are heaven and hell actually like? Well, given that heaven, as we saw, is really the shorthand for the new heavens and the new earth, under God's perfect eternal rule, and that hell is kind of shorthand for eternal destruction, lake of fire, outer darkness, second death kind of thing. Perhaps a more biblically way of thinking about each of these eternal destinations is renewal and torment. Relative to other things God has revealed, there is less about the details of heaven and hell in the scriptures. At one level, that has to be the case because we're dealing with realities beyond the scope of our experience in a fallen, time-bound existence. But there is certainly more than enough to deeply impress upon us the absolute horror and torment of hell and the absolute wonder and paradise of renewal. I'll deal with hell first so that we can at least end on something more positive. In his great speech to the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul said of God that he made us and placed us all in our time and location so, and that God did this so that we, people, would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not very far from any one of us. One of my all-time favourite Puritans, a guy named Thomas Boston, I think does great justice to this teaching when he says, man naturally desires to be happy being conscious to himself that he is not self-sufficient, he has ever a desire of something outside himself to make him happy. And the soul being, by its natural make and constitution, capable of enjoying God and nothing else being commensurable to its desires, it can never have true and solid rest till it rests in the enjoyment of God. So basically, yes, we were designed to find satisfaction, to find our truest meaning, our truest humanity in God, in knowing God. So what does it look like when we persistently reject our purpose and when God gives us over eventually to our rebelliousness for all eternity? 
Well, Boston continues with the dreadful but thoroughly logical conclusion, and I quote, Now, while the wicked are on earth, they seek their satisfaction in the creature. And when one fails, they go to another. Thus they spend their time in the world, deceiving their own souls with vain hopes. But in hell, all comfort in the creature's failing, they shall be totally and finally separated from God and see they have thus lost him. So the doors of earth and heaven both are shut against them at once. This will create them unspeakable anguish. Why they shall live under an eternal gnawing of hunger after happiness, which they certainly know shall never be in the least measure satisfied, all doors being closed on them. Who then can imagine how this separation from God shall cut the damned to the heart, how they will roar and rage under it, and how it will sting and gnaw them through the ages of eternity? Friends, no wonder Jesus would use the imagery of outer darkness or of unquenchable fire or of everlasting destruction to speak of what it will be like for sinners to deservingly suffer body and soul the wrath of the God they have despised. The idea that Satan is ruling over hell is, of course, thoroughly unbiblical in all Hollywood. Uh, Jesus is obviously the one who rules over hell, he rules over all things. That lake of unquenchable fire was designed for Satan to suffer in and all those who have followed him, which is everyone who hasn't followed Jesus, and they'll meet the same fate. The idea that sinners in hell will at least be with their friends, well, that foolishly assumes that friendship is possible in the absence of God's goodness, which, of course, it's not. By the way, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, please, please do the right thing, the thing God himself has actually designed you for, please turn to him in repentance. Thank him that Jesus died to pay the price for your sin and your rebellion against him and live with Jesus as your Lord from this day forward. Tomorrow could be too late. Do it today. Do it in your own heart and mind now as I continue speaking. So what about heaven then? Or far from being like cherubs sitting on clouds, playing harps, and therefore, frankly, getting bored. Though if they had guitars, maybe. Anyway. (laughs) Far from that kind of vibe, it'll be more like enjoying a renewed earth where God dwells forever with his redeemed people. To quote from Hakima again, are we to spend eternity somewhere off in space wearing white robes, plucking harps, singing songs, from flitting from cloud to cloud while doing so? On the contrary, the Bible assures us that God will create a new earth on which we shall live to God's praise in glorified, resurrected bodies. On that new earth, therefore, we hope to spend eternity, enjoying its beauties, exploring its resources, using its treasures to the glory of God. Since God will make the new earth his dwelling place, and since where God dwells, there heaven is, we shall then continue to be in heaven while we are on the new earth. God is a God who is at rest. Every one of the six days he was forming the world, there was an evening and a morning. But on the seventh day, he rested, and there hasn't been an evening and a morning from the seventh day. So God is still in his rest, if you like. And the writer of the Hebrews tells us that we are soon to enter into God's rest. 
And yet at the same time, God has consistently been active in sustaining the world. Jesus says that his Father is always working. The logical conclusion is that the new heavens and the new earth, our experience of rest, will include satisfying work or satisfying activity. It's hard for us to think of work without thinking of drudgery, difficulty, stress. But we can think of activities that we love to do that give us great satisfaction and fulfilment to the praise and glory and honour of God. Imagine work without any of the drudgery, right? Some, some, something along those lines. And speaking of rest, given that we're currently foreigners and exiles in this world, as we're called in 1 Peter chapter 2, and that Jesus is preparing a place for us, John 14, another fitting image of entering into the new heavens and new earth would be that feeling of coming home after a long holiday or a camp. Whether the camp or the holiday was good or bad is irrelevant. That, that feeling of relaxing familiarity... It's like the God you've always known as your heavenly father, the Jesus you've always known as your older brother, they're there and they welcome you back to look after you so that you enjoy that relaxing feeling you get when you're finally sleeping in your own bed again. Other images, of course, like the one we had uh, close to our Bible reading in Revelation, close, uh, is of a wedding feast, which my wife really likes because she's a foodie, so she looks forward to that wedding feast. There's a glorious city with nothing defiled or impure ever entering it. But the big ticket item is that we'll be united with the Lord that we've always known and with whom our souls find absolute delight and satisfaction beyond what we're capable of imagining. Some people have difficulty with the notion of heaven because it's kind of like, well, won't it be boring, right? But you're asking a person who's uh, stuck in a fallen, sinful world to conceive of entertainment and enjoyment without the reality of sin. Yeah, it is actually hard. But the reality is our souls find rest and delight and satisfaction in him beyond what even we can currently imagine. As the Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2, uh, 2, 9, no eye has seen nor ear has heard nor mind conceive what God has prepared for those who love him. So to finish up, two implications that I'll rush through a little bit for the sake of time. Firstly, once you understand the relationship between the last days and the last day and know where we currently fit in, it becomes easy to understand why God allows his own children to undergo suffering. You see, suffering is itself part and parcel of the fallen world that is heading toward destruction. It's never a good thing. Suffering itself is never to be celebrated because it's always horrible. But God, in his loving kindness and sovereign goodness, lets the suffering do its work on the Christian. Given it's part of the last days but not of the resurrection age, when the suffering of this world befalls us, he allows it to push the focus and desire of our hearts and minds toward our life that is currently hidden in Christ. This in turn puts us in the optimal condition to anticipate the last day. Jesus himself knows the suffering we endure. In fact, we endure it as part of his body. Remember, we are the body of Christ. Jesus knows the suffering very acutely of his people. And yet it fits us for the glory that is to come. 
And in my experience, at least, the Christians who patiently endure hardship tend to bring Jesus so much glory in the way they serve as an encouragement to God's church. The reality is you'll suffer one way or another sooner or later. That's the experience of being human, if you live long enough at least, is the experience of suffering. The non-Christian suffers ultimately for no sensible cause or reason. It's just random. The Christian experiences the randomness, quote-unquote, of suffering in a fallen world, but it's only ever always seconded to serve the good, perfect plans of our loving Heavenly Father who works for the good of all things and those who love him. Lastly, seeing our place in God's eschatological order enables us to appreciate the way God gives us guidance in making all sorts of decisions. You see, once you know that God's in the process of summing all things up under the authority of Jesus, Ephesians 1, and once you know that you've been given that resurrection even though you live here in these last days, it becomes clear what matters and what doesn't matter. And if it matters, God has given us tremendous guidance on it in his word, the scriptures. To our own peril, we often decide we know what matters more and we think, God, could you just tell me whether I should eat the red apple or the green one? God, tell me whether I should take this job or that job. Yeah, God cares about the small things, fair enough. But what he has written in his word guides us in accordance with the real trajectory that we find ourselves on. So if it's not there, it really doesn't matter. You just use biblical wisdom to make a decision. Uh, it's like going on a massive car trip. Does it matter, you know, what colour the jumper is I'm wearing? It doesn't have much of a bearing on whether or not I get to my destination. Does it matter the, uh, the engine in the car and its condition? Yes, that, that, that's important. Right? It's that kind of thing. Friends, I'm going to uh, leave us there in prayer. I recognise that uh, to do a half-hour sermon on a, a topic that requires 10 half-hour sermons is thoroughly inadequate. If you've got questions, comments, of course, uh, in a moment, Gav will give you the, the, the connect form. You can send them there. But how about I conclude in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for revealing to us the mystery that was kept hidden for ages, that in Christ... We are all one family, part of his body, and that we look forward to a new heavens and a new earth in which all things are summed up under Jesus. We thank you that you've made that eternity possible for us in the ministry of Jesus, who died for our sins and rose in order to give us new life. Father, as we live in these last days, anticipating the last day, help us be vigilant. Help us not give up meeting together so that we can stay prepared for that last day. And for those known to us who as yet are in deadly peril for their constant and ongoing rejection of you, we pray your love and mercy will become evident and known to them, that you will convict them of the truth that is in Jesus, turn them in repentance and faith, that they might enjoy the new heavens and the new earth with us, glorifying you for all eternity. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.